Hey everybody and welcome to another My Angular Story. This week we're going to be talking to Jeff Welpley. Jeff, do you want to say hi? How's it going, Chuck? Doing all right. Um, Now, Jeff, you've been on the show, I think, a couple of times, and you also spoke at Angular Remote Conf last year. Yeah, that's right. I uh, I guess I'm a semi-regular at this point on the podcast. Yep. Let's see. I think I've got you for episode 28, 56, 93, 114. Basically all the best best shows, right? That's right. Definitely. So, yeah, so we thought we'd bring you on, kind of get your story, find out, you know, what makes you tick, uh, you know, what what you've been up to lately. I think I saw something that said former host of Angular Air. So are you still doing that or not so much? Well, I still uh, go on to guest from time to time, but this year has been really busy for me. So I sort of had to make a choice about, you know, three or four months ago on what I was going to focus on in 2017. And even though I loved hosting Angular Air, I ultimately decided that it was for the best of the show to kind of let Justin and Mike Brocky and a couple of the other guys kind of step up and take over. And I still um, go on, you know, once a month or somewhere around there, um, but they really run it now. Gotcha. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. So yeah, so lots of interesting stuff going on. We'll, we'll dig into all of that. Um, I did send you a set of questions before you came on the show. Did you get those? Yep, definitely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start with the first one then. Uh, and this is something that I'm, I, I love hearing these stories. And uh, just to kind of preface this a little bit, sometimes it's, well, I was eight years old and my dad bought, you know, a computer. And some people it's like, well, I graduated from college with a liberal arts degree and, you know, some way or another family member, friend wanted a career change. They find programming and that's kind of their thing now. Uh, how did you get into programming? So for me, actually, it started from something that wasn't programming related at first. Uh, when I was a teenager, I actually did all sorts of jobs. My mom really believed in just like putting us to work. So like we did everything from yard work, uh, golf caddying, every type of you know work under the sun, whatever she could sort of uh, sell us off to. We were like little slaves that she sold us off to all of the neighbors to do whatever they, <laughs> they needed. And you know, after I got to be a teenager, it sort of answered a little bit, I guess, that I joined a, like a temp agency and I was still doing a whole variety of random stuff, but then for companies. And if you've ever hired a temp or um, been one yourself, you know that like, it's like the worst of the worst <laughs> corporate work. They like give you every like kind of grunt job that they don't want to do themselves. And 
there was one particular job where I started to get into uh, my initial thing into programming when I joined a company called Lucent Technologies that was a baby bell in New Jersey, kind of a subsidiary of the AT&T mega behemoth at that time. And they had like thousands of these Excel spreadsheets that they needed adjusted and updated with the latest data. And the way they, they did it is that they had this printout uh, or actually it was a, a, you know, a file that had all of the new data. And I had to go into each of these like thousand spreadsheets and start kind of updating the data and then it would update the chart and that type of thing. And as I was kind of doing this, like kind of monotonous work that was taking me kind of all day, you know, 40 hours a week over the summer, one person who worked there saw what I was doing and he's like, oh, you know, you can actually, some of what you're doing, you can make it easier on yourself if you use this macro. There, there are these things in Microsoft Office, if you've ever used a macros, yeah. which you sort of just record what you're doing and then it replays it. So I did that and that helped. And that was cool. That helped a lot. But then I was like, you know, I, I sort of got curious. And, and even back then I had like this sort of curiosity with like how things work. And once I realized that this thing was kind of um, somewhat hackable, I dove into it and I started seeing how the macros work and noticed that there was actually this programming language VB script, I believe it was called, or VBA, uh, Visual Basic for Applications, that you can code in order to run the macros. So then I, I sort of took it to this next level of like, okay, I, I, I had no idea how to program at that, that standpoint, but I just want to get through my day, my boring day of filling out these spreadsheets. So I taught myself basically using, um, do you remember in the old Microsoft office, they had like that clippy thing, the uh, helper guy who would <laughs> tell you how to do certain stuff that was kind of annoying. He, he would... Um, at least had like a uh, online help thing locally. They didn't yeah. <laughs> have, uh, they didn't really have like uh, Stack Overflow at that time or anything like that. So Clippy was basically my good friend helping me teach me uh, some of the ins and outs of Visual uh, Basic for applications using Excel, and that was my start into programming. I started working on that, and I sort of fell in love with it, and uh, sort of just kept kept it going from there. Uh, the good old days, Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I, I remember, uh, s several other programs that I used had macros. And so, yeah, you would, wh whether it was a hot key or something else, or you would actually click the macro button and then click it again. Um, and then click the play macro button. But yeah. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh you you get in there you figure this stuff out and then uh how do you make that leap from that into um web development yeah so when i got into college i even though i i loved um programming and i was kind of doing it um like in small pieces during high school it's kind of like hobbyish type of thing uh when i got to college you know back it's it's crazy to think this now but Back in the late 1990s, being a programmer wasn't like a total prestigious thing. It wasn't something that like everybody was doing. And and even majoring in college, it, it wasn't necessarily something that you would see as like a, a prestigious path to success. And so I, just from my parents and other sources, kind of got talked into started starting to do uh, pre-med, like become, um, the track to become a doctor. 
And I went down that for a little while. I was mildly interested in some of that, but I, I, I can definitely remember there's this one night that they would ha- they had um, doctors and, and people from the medical industry who would come in and like talk about what their life was like and to kind of prepare us. And they just kind of went through this whole thing and like giving us a very visceral um, kind of picture of what that's like. And I just realized then and there on this one particular night that just that was not for me. And so I had to like take a step back and and rethink what I was going to do with my life. And I remembered that I do like doing this thing. And, you know, I, I wasn't totally sure that I could make a career out of it, uh, which is, again, crazy to think about now. But, um, you know, I, I just joined the computer science program and got really into it and um, did really well. And then just uh, fortunate enough that when I graduated, it was right at the, the peak of the dot-com boom. Um, so that actually helped quite a bit as well, because I think if I graduated even one year later after the bust, um, it was a completely different story. But I was fortunate enough to join when money was flowing freely and all sorts of craziness going on. And uh, so I immediately got hired by this kind of hardcore consulting company um, and uh, just spent the next year before the the bust and everything kind of fall the the bottom fell out from everybody. Um, just flying around the country, working for a number of like really big um, companies like eBay and uh, Priceline, kind of building the initial versions of their software that's kind of like ubiquitous uh, or now or is at least uh, you know still around and very popular. Uh, so um, that was where I really got into web programming. That's funny. There are a couple of things I kind of want to pick at, uh, mainly because I I understand a lot of it. Um, you know, you mentioned that you were kind of pushed toward pre-med and then, um, you know, figured out that wasn't a life for you. I went through the same thing, except it was patent law. Um, so my, mm-hmm. my degree was in computer engineering and I was preparing to go to law school. I took a couple of uh, sample LSATs I scored within the top 85th to 90th percentile depending on which sample test it was so I, I mean I could have gone to law school and uh, I went and talked to a few patent attorneys and then I went and uh, took an internship writing patent applications and I figured out really fast that I didn't want to do that for a living um, and yeah uh, I did IT for a while and then finally wound up in programming and my first programming job was in a consultancy just like that um, it was about six years after you, but <laughs> at the same time, yeah, it's it's interesting how uh, these opportunities come up and present themselves. And even as a newish person, you're still able to make the contributions, you know, even in kind of a hard charging, hardcore place like a consultancy. Yeah, for sure. Actually, in our um, the one that I joined in particular, it was um, an interesting place because they had this sort of slash and burn mentality where they you would throw newbies. They, they didn't care whether you had just joined or you were an experienced, you know, developer that had been doing it for 10 years. They expected everybody to be able to contribute at the same level, you know, for better or for worse. And so they would just throw people in these projects and expect, have the same exact expectations for everybody. Like you have to do this, this, and this. And a lot of people 
didn't make it. Like, even though they paid us like, I mean, crazy amount for that time, like right out of college. Um, and like lots of awesome benefits of like steak dinners every night and flying around and all that type of stuff. Um, but a lot of people quit. A lot of people got fired, uh, because they just had that sort of mentality. And, um, that sort of got into my own psyche a little bit, not, not in terms that that's good by any means. Um, but more, more so just the, the, the competitiveness, I guess the, 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 um, like seeing like really talented people who just didn't have the drive, I guess as much. Um, and you know, I guess what it takes to like, you, you start to believe in yourself a lot more because, once you are kind of forced, put in these positions where you have, it's either do or die and you actually do succeed. Um, you just get gain a ton of confidence from that. And I think I was again, fortunate enough that, that I was able to kind of build on that for then everything that kind of came after that in my career. So do you have any advice for people who are looking to kind of come into the field now and sort of replicate what you've been able to do as far as, you know, just getting started? Like, well, what do you tell people? Because they're not coming in during a dot-com boom. I mean, we are in sort of a boom a little bit just from the sense that everybody needs technology, but it doesn't seem like there are ubiquitous new programmer jobs out there. You know, I think actually, Chuck, today is very different. Besides what you're saying, um, one thing that's really interesting to me is that there's such a need for developers right now that, like, it's everybody even companies that are traditionally non-technical are starting to get technical, finding value in, in hiring developers, you know, on the team and that type of thing. So mm -hmm. the need for developers has only increased, but the, the difference between big difference between now and back in 2000 is that the tolerance for bringing on like kind of junior developers and, and newbies is much lower that people expect and want somebody with experience who knows what the, what they're doing. And as a result, what I'm seeing with people I know coming out of college, my own brother more recently, that it's very hard to kind of get over this weird hump that there's such a need in there and there's such a big market for developers. But at the same time, it's so hard to get into it when you just get started before you get that initial experience. Um, so the thing that I usually recommend to people because of that specific situation is that you sort of need to unless you get lucky, unless, you know, you, you do manage to find a way to, to get a job like your, your initial job. I mean, that's great. But for most people, it, it's a little bit harder. And so you sort of have to manufacture experience. You have to like make yourself an experienced developer before you're an experienced developer. And uh, the best way to do that is with either open source projects or, you know, essentially doing free work. Uh, I, I think that it's a necessity when you're starting out these days, you, you know, because you get that valuable experience and then you can build off of that for the future. I think you're right. And it's funny because I've been working on this book forever. It feels like um, on how to find a programmer job, especially as a new person. And I, I like that idea and I might actually steal it <laughs> of uh, <laughs> manufacturing experience because um, ultimately what I tell people is look, um, these companies, it's, it's not your experience level and it's not what you have or haven't done. What they want is they want somebody that they can bring in that can do a job that can 
you know, be valuable to the company in the ways that matter. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, depending on your situation, um, when you go through the regular hiring process where you send in a resume and do an interview, the only thing they have to go on is the length of that resume. And so, you know, good or bad, what winds up happening is they look at that and they say, well, this person hasn't done very much. And so they don't call you. And so what you have to do is exactly that. So you go and you, you work on these open source projects and you go speak at the users groups and you, you do all of these other things that demonstrate to them when they see them that you actually can figure this stuff out and that you do have the sort of experience and the sort of drive that they want to have in their employees. And that's ultimately how you get hired. And so, yeah, it's, it's right up there along the lines of, of what I'm telling people, you know, if you can demonstrate to them that you can do what they need done, then they'll probably hire you. But, you know, barring that, barring some way to get in front of them and show them that, yeah, all they have to go on is how deep your resume is, how many jobs have you had, and then talk to you and make sure that it's not, you're not one of those people that just kind of coasts from job to job. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'll even take it a little bit further and, and just speak in terms of even in your career, because beyond just when you first get started at every point in your career, when you want to do something new, when you want to, you know, get that promotion or, or, you know, fulfill this new role, what I've found, you know, in my own career and what I see with other people is the when the times when it is easiest to to do that when you do kind of advance more quickly and you are able to accomplish those types of uh, you know, objectives that you set out is when you become that person before someone tells you that you're you're that person you know you, you don't wait for like if you translate what we're saying to like promotion let's say like you don't wait until someone promotes you to be a manager before you start acting like a manager you be the manager like, I mean, and that doesn't mean like bossing people around, like there's certain subtle aspects to that. Uh, so it's not necessarily black and white, but what I, the people that I, you know, now I, I run my own company and I, you know, promote other people. And, uh, almost every time when I'm putting someone in a position of leadership, they are already that leader, like before I put them, before I kind of gave them that title or whatever. And furthermore, everybody else on the team already knew that as well. Uh, then you didn't have to tell them just because you're displaying certain attributes. You're, you're, you're just, uh, being that person, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's just so interesting too, just from the, you know, what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the people that step up, the the people that are, yeah, they're already being the person that you want in that position. So you just, you kind of formalize it more than anything else. And I think getting a job is a lot the same way. Um, the difference is, is you're not already in the company, but yeah, they see you out there being the kind of person that they want to hire. And so, boom, they offer you the job. Yep. So um, let's, let's move along here from... Uh, you know, being the jet setter consultant, um, how do you get from that to Angular? Uh, what was that transition? Yeah, so for a little while, I was out in California uh, at first consulting, and then I joined a financial company that eventually became Wells Fargo. And while I was at Wells Fargo, I became um, an engineering director where I had a couple different software development teams, 
creating a couple different products in the auto finance department there. And it was during that time that like we start, well, well, we were starting to think about uh, recreating this old legacy product. We had this old uh, legacy loan origination system. And we started thinking about, okay, what if we just threw this away basically and rewrote things, which very rarely happens in larger corporate um, enterprises. So like it, it's a, a big deal. And, and just even thinking about and trying to like work through the details, um, you know, it requires a lot of work and effort. And as I was doing that, I did a lot of research into different technologies. I, I at that time, I'd done a lot of like .NET and Java stuff was mostly the, the work, uh, type of technology that I had been using. But I started to realize that um, you know, and thinking about like these rich client applications, like uh, using at that time, really uh, jQuery was really the only thing in town. I think Backbone maybe had had started uh, to to become a thing, um, but it, you know, there there was examples of these richer client interfaces. I think Gmail was like the first one in like 2006, and and what I'm talking about is more like 2008, 2009, and I, I was just really interested in that time in even then like kind of creating these richer interfaces using JavaScript for everything they were doing. Unfortunately, the technology then wasn't quite uh, at the point where uh, enterprises can like, could like use it in the way we wanted to. Um, So I wasn't able to really dive into that for that particular project. But as soon as I left Wells Fargo um, in 2011 and joined a new startup, uh, I immediately got to work um, using Backbone at that time um, on you know a new project building out, building out this new product, and it worked well. It, it was it was it was fine first iteration. Um, there were a couple issues, but that was when um, Angular uh, 1.0 I think uh, hit somewhere around there, and um, you know, it was just clear to me that that was like infinitely better than the alternatives at that time. And, uh, we basically within, uh, you know, it took me, I don't know, like, uh, six months to create the initial backbone based, uh, rich client at, at that startup. And then it was called mesh one. And then we kind of rewrote it in, I think it like only took like a month in angular and it was like infinitely better. Um, this is angular 1.0 or whatever. And, uh, it was basically ever since then I was, uh, hooked and then I took it even further when I left Mesh to join, um, to start Get Human. Um, then we basically did everything in Angular right from the start. That's awesome. I, and I, I love that it was, okay, we're trying to do these things. We're trying to solve these problems. What's out there that does this? And then you go out and you find Angular and, and plug it into this. Uh, I know so many people where that seems to be the step or two that that people take when they learn a new tool or a new framework or they switch programming languages as, you know from what was their primary thing before to now is it well i have this problem and what i have in my toolbox right now doesn't solve it and so i just i just love that idea of oh okay well let me reach for some of these other things that i've heard about and okay looks like angular is the one that fits yeah definitely I, i'm a big believer in trying to use the things that you got um, and and stick with it if you can. Like that should be your first option. You've already built an application or a product with something and you shouldn't switch on a whim. Like it shouldn't just be, oh, this is the hotness, you know, let's move to this thing. Try to take 
learning lessons from this new stuff and, and try to implement it with what you have. Mm-hmm. But then recognize that sometimes there are limitations. Like it's, it, you're not going to be able to put a square peg in a round hole or whatever. Um, and you know, at that time, with like, let's say the the Backbone app, for example, there were some aspects of um, Angular, like once once that came out and some of the ideas there, that definitely you can implement, like you can with, for example, your Backbone use, the hot thing at that time was two-way data binding. I know now it's kind of like out of fashion, but at that, that time it was like uh, something that everybody was excited for. And you can do that with Backbone. It's not like you have to switch because of that. Um, but it, it more becomes other things. Like it becomes like the ecosystem, which like, look, mm-hmm. this thing is uh, going to be more valuable over time because the ecosystem is so much richer already and growing by the day. And there's all these other things that it has that, um, you know, Backbone doesn't where you, you sort of have to roll your own. So it becomes like this more, um, in an ideal case, this is a actual logical decision of like, okay, I know I, I can theoretically do the same thing in both, but do I want to roll all of my own stuff in Backbone or do I want to leverage this huge community that's like improving stuff by the day uh, on this other side of the fence? Yeah, and, and it's easy to forget sometimes. You know, you're, you think about your tools and you think about them in terms of technology instead of thinking about, okay, who's out there solving the problem that I have in this other ecosystem? Yeah, definitely, and it's important. So uh, you've made a whole bunch of contributions to um, Angular, and I want to talk about those in a minute. But you've talked about starting Get Human, and I think every time I see, like, you give a talk or something like that, it's Jeff from Get Human. What is Get Human? So it was a site that was started by this guy, Paul English, who's the founder of Kayak.com. So you've heard of Kayak, right? Mm Mm-hmm. A travel website and Paul sort of started Get Human as a side project at the same time as he was starting Kayak. He had a um, sick relative and um, the relative had Alzheimer's. And when he came home at night, um, he found out that his relative was basically um, very frustrated because he had spent all day trying to call um, these companies about some medical issue that he had. And he kept on getting lost in the call tree. Like when you, when you get the IVR and it says press one for this, press two for this or whatever. And he would just get lost and then he would just hang up and he got very frustrated and kept on calling back and, and getting lost and everything. So Paul got really frustrated. So he basically posted just like, um, with the initial version of Craigslist, it started off as just like this one page, uh, website where he just posted like all the cheat codes for every, every major company, their phone numbers and the cheat codes to get through to a human. That was like the initial idea. Just as simple That's as that. awesome. And, uh, those drive it, me it, nuts. Yeah, exactly. You and go through six it, steps and then it's, here's your account balance. That's not what yeah, I It's like, no, no. <laughs> and it became crazy popular really quickly. Um, in a matter of like six months, it was already past, uh, you know, a million people a month. Um, then it kind of grew even more from there. He eventually 
started getting more press for this small one-page side project than his actual venture venture backed business. <laughs> and um, he would get like people coming into the kayak offices trying to interview him and and talk to him about get human. Uh, meanwhile, he's trying to like focus on his actual business where he makes money and everything like that. He, he was actually on the Today Show with Katie, <laughs> Katie Couric. Um, you know, there's, there's all this like really interesting stories about it. Um, so it basically became this like distraction where he had to like put it to the side, like sort of shut it down to agree, like just stop working on it um, because it was becoming such a big distraction. So for a couple of years, um, it, it just was kind of sitting there languishing. And in 2011, about the same time when I was um, at this, you know, mesh, the startup before Get Human, um, my friend who actually um, I was, w was with me at the very first consulting company that I was at right out of college, this, this company Talon, uh, my friend Christian Allen, he was working with Paul at Kayak and he was thinking about leaving. He wanted to start his own company and Paul kind of um, tried to talk him into either staying or doing some other side project with him or whatever. And while they were discussing that, um, some, somehow Get Human came up and Christian realized that, that it was like an unbelievably great idea that you know we could do something with. So he convinced Paul to basically uh, let him have it and, and start an actual company off of it, not just a side project. Um, so Christian started working at first and then he sort of talked me into joining him and just kind of like formalizing, you know, making this a real company. And we kind of went from there. Um, so from, from there, uh, you know, at that time and for the first year we worked on it, it was just an ad based business and we just made money off ads, uh, you know, direct, you know, trying to get people mm -hmm. contact information for companies. But, in 2013, the end of 2013, um, 2014, we started to put out a service to basically help people solve customer service problems for them. Uh, so it's not just getting you in touch with companies, it's actually just tell us what the problem is and we'll just solve it for you. Um, so now we've kind of built that up over time to the point now where we've raised VC money ourselves. We were bootstrapped for a little while, um, but now we, we've raised actual um, money from VCs and we built up a big team and we're basically focused on trying to make solving customer service problems um, efficient so that we can expand, you know, and, and, and make it a real thing for, you know, everybody. Nice. I should start another show. That's my developer entrepreneur story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. And it's something that I can identify with as well. Um, I told you before the show um, and when this comes out, it'll be old news, but my grandmother passed away this morning and um, she, she and my grandfather both, they didn't have Alzheimer's per se, but they had pretty severe dementia. And I can just imagine them getting on the phone and, you know, trying to navigate one of those systems. And it's like, yeah, after after the first one, you know, press one for English. Um, I don't think that she'd really be able to, you know, you get through the first or second one and then she can't even remember what she's doing anymore. So, yeah, I mean. That's uh, one of the most common use cases we have in terms of just, just people that get frustrated with the um, system that they have set up. But um, also, even the companies, we, what we've noticed is we, we still get today a lot of people paying us for problems that are 
um, technically not that hard. And, and the company does a decent job of providing service for it. But the, the issue is that, you know, if you think about it, each individual person has on average like six times a year, six to 10 times a year when they have to call a company that's like statistically or whatever we found. Um, and you know, so it's not a lot. And when they do, you know, even if the process is simple, it still takes time to figure out what it is. And, uh, you don't necessarily know all the like little tricks that, um, they have for like how to get your rate lowered to the lowest amount or, you know, when's the best time to call or whatever else. So what we found over time is that, you know, the people that kind of keep on coming back to us and using our service are the ones that realize that it gets even better once you just kind of, uh, have this one common interface with us. Like we act as the interface for all these other disparate, um, ways of interacting with companies and you could just tell us and we'll, uh, be your sort of advocate on your, your behalf to everybody. So the overall service seems fairly straightforward. I'm wondering how Angular plays into this then, because you're not necessarily like a software as a service or anything. It's it's more of a, hey, take care of this problem for me. So how, how does Angular make your company run better? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, and uh, it, it has like kind of an interesting path because when we started out, um, you know, still doing Angular 1 days, you know, before Angular 2 was even close to a thing, uh, we wanted to turn what was previously a LAMP stack, like, so PHP, um, to static web pages, basically, or, or, you know, dynamically built, but like pretty much static content. Right. Into something that was more interactive because we wanted to turn a site that just had this contact information into something where the user could interact. And not only, I mean, I I mentioned that we're solving these customer service problems, but we also provide a set of like a bunch of free tools that we've added as well, like a stack overflow kind of question answer type um, uh, information site, a review site and a couple other things. And so there's different ways that the user can interact with us. And so for that reason, um, we, we had sort of these special requirements that I don't think a ton of people fall into where we needed to have the rich interface and we wanted to have kind of real time connectivity for certain, um, uh, interactions at the same time as it's super important because of our content, um, which, which is heavily SEO dependent, heavily dependent on people coming in through search engines to our site. We still need to have the, the server, um, focused, um, rendering and everything like that. And so at that time, uh, I mean, to be honest, Angular wasn't even a good fit for, for that specific use case. There was nothing really, uh, you know, backbone in, in this in 2011 and, and, and backbone, I think had just came out with the, um, something called the render R E N D R, um, by Spike Brem from Airbnb. And, uh, and that was like the, the really one of the only things for doing this sort of isomorphic rendering thing. Um, but, you know, kind of following Spike's, um, the way Spike was thinking about it and the way he built render relative to Backbone, uh, I basically built our own custom uh, rendering engine, server-side rendering engine um, in Angular, with Angular 1 um, that allowed us to basically fulfill both of these needs because... For the client side stuff, uh, there was no doubt in my mind at that time that Angular was the best framework. 
Um, and then for the server side, there was really nothing. So we just built our own kind of rolled, rolled our own and it basically worked great. In fact, we still, even though we've, we've started to, um, change some stuff over to Angular 2, we still do use our custom Angular 1 server rendering solution, um, for a lot of our, our core content. Um, and it works great. Yeah, I think I think that was when we first had you on to talk about isomorphic Java or my, yeah. yeah isomorphic JavaScript with Angular, and uh, yep. yeah, just dig into that. And it's funny how that's evolved too, because we had you back on to talk. We we also brought on uh, Patrick um, to talk about Angular Universal, which is kind of the same thing with Angular too. Yeah, and actually, uh, so I mean, that this starts to get into like where my my real contributions to Angular come because you know with the, our own custom solution, I, I did intend for it originally to be built in such a way that I could share it with other people and other people could use it as an open source library, just like Spike did with with the render. Um, but I, I, it was one of these things where we got the first iteration out and it was working, and then by the time I. St- started to look into like the second iteration to make it accessible for everybody. Then Angular 2 came out. And I, when I started talking to um, Igor at that time, he was the first one who was like, you know what, um, you should be able to do this in Angular 2. We haven't like kind of built that part yet, but this sort of core is built in a way that allows for you to, to do this in Angular 2. And so he hooked me up um, with Tobias, from the core team and we basically started talking at ngconf in what was it 2013 or 2014 i am forgetting one of those years um after after angular 2 initially uh came out or, or the announcement came out that they were building it and uh basically after that conversation with um tobias and patrick uh, i met at that um ngconf as well and so it was kind of the three of us uh, chatting about the possibility of building this server rendering library in Angular 2, uh, we we sort of took it on our, ourselves to just just do it. So Patrick and I uh, started building it right after ngconf that year, and um, we had a prototype out, out pretty quickly. And it was obvious to me, you know, even after the initial prototype that. I don't, I shouldn't even bother trying to open source my Angular 1 solution because this was going to be so much better. Um, so we, we started working on it from there and, and eventually that thing became uh, Angular Universal, which is um, probably the, the biggest contribution that I've made uh, to Angular. And, and actually, um, more specifically, um, you know, within the Angular Universal library, uh, Patrick and I did a bunch of stuff together, but um, this sort of guts of the server rendering piece um, was mostly Patrick. Uh, well, I focused on a different piece called Preboot. So I, uh, most of Preboot I, I did where that's the part that basically the glue between the server generated view from Angular Universal and the client view that's generated by the, the standard Angular 2 client side rendering. So besides this uh, backend rendering on Angular, um, you've also been involved in Angular Air. Yeah, so uh, about the time that I was actually working on Angular Universal, Kent had started, Kent C. Dodds had started Angular Air with Todd Motto. And I would <laughs> initially, 
I was just a troll. Uh, you know, I, I, I a, a, a funny, a funny troll. Like, I, I mean, Ken, I knew Ken and he knew me and it was just all in good fun. But I, I would basically put a bunch of like they, Ken had this um, thing where he would put questions out like for each show you can post questions and the funny thing Ken has these these like very funny things that like I, some people probably don't don't know uh one of them is that he gets in habits and he kind of sticks to them and he doesn't like adjust so like i i, I knew and i got to know this very quickly with with some some stuff and, and one of them was that whatever the questions were that people would post, he would read them. Like he didn't like pre-filter them and then like not say them. So I would start like putting like all of these questions on there knowing that he was going to read them. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of times it, it would, uh, it would, it would be stuff like, um, you know, asking certain questions to, to like the uh, Ionic guys about why they're working on a dead technology or, or something along those lines. <laughs> nice. um, and then he'd be like, wait a second. I, what, what did I, <laughs> Um, so anyway, so from that, uh, then he, he asked me to like join one of the shows to like, um, come on as a panelist and I was a panelist for a while. And then he decided that he wanted to do uh, JavaScript air instead of angular air and was gonna actually just end angular air altogether. But Patrick and I convinced him to let us take it over. So we, we took it over and I, I hosted shows for a little over a year. Um, you know, i seeing I feel like a million different shows, but uh, probably closer to like on the order of like 30, um, 30 or 40 shows. And uh, it was great. I, I, I loved it. It was uh, a lot of fun. I love being a host. I love podcasting, uh, radio, all of that. But um, like I was starting to say earlier in this show, uh, basically once we raised VC money um, at the end of last year, I knew that I'd have to start to limit a little bit of the stuff that I extracurricular stuff I do outside of work and kind of hone it in a little bit. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't go on the podcast at all. I'm obviously like going on this one today and some other ones. Um, but I, I, I can't be the main person responsible. I guess, I guess that's the main thing that I figured out is that like in terms of like being the, the main responsible person, I, I can only do that for my company. Now these other things like I contribute when I can and I sort of, tried like even with angular universal like i had to like transition some stuff to other people and uh you know i still contribute i still do some stuff for it um but it's less than before and i'm not like the primary person anymore that's interesting and and i can definitely identify with that um i remember um i went the other way because i i you know i opted for the podcasts but for the first probably five years after i got laid off from my last full-time job i was a software consultant and I took I had actually taken like three contracts um, and then realized I didn't have time for the contracts and the podcasts and so I had to make that call but at the same time you know it wasn't a venture-backed company where people were counting on me for my living it was just me as a consultant so I could make the other choice but yeah I mean we, we all do that right where it's I'm gonna make this trade-off in my career or this trade-off with these life decisions or this these trade-offs with the organizations that I serve in and it it really just comes down to what's important to us and uh, how do you make those decisions especially when it involves your career because all of these things being on angular air helps your career 
uh, being involved in Get Human helps your career. So how, how do you make that decision? How do you go, okay, well, these are all good things. Which good thing am I going to not be as involved in anymore? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the common uh, phrase that you hear is that you're more likely to uh, drown in opportunity than starve. And it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. Like, especially because I like doing these things. I mean, I like, I mean, just recently I really, really wanted to, to, um, submit a, a talk for ng-conf. Like I, I loved speaking there at ng-conf last year. I had a great idea. I, I, I really wanted to do it and I just couldn't like, I basically, I, for that particular decision, you know, I was like, okay, let me, break it down. Like I, I know how much time it takes me to do talks because I've done a number of them the past two years. So let me do some calculations, uh, you know, the amount of time prep time and, you know, every, everything involved with, with, you know, going to the conference and, and preparing for it. And just, I just couldn't justify it. Like, um, it, it is different when, I feel like it's not just the fact that you have a daytime job. Like there's different um, situations in your life. Like there's different, like you're right, Chuck, that you have a priority list and you have different things that are more important than others. But also depending on the specific time and the specific situation, those things can adjust slightly, right? And the the, the sort of key thing for me, I guess, was um, specifically with this company and raising like VC money is so much different than everything else I've done in my life. You know, even when I was at like, let's say at Wells Fargo, where I had a team of 30 developers and I had like a lot of responsibility that what there were a lot of pressures there, but it wasn't nearly the same thing because in the corporate environment, in that environment, you know, you, it wasn't do or die. It wasn't all or nothing. You know, the corporations are built to last. And even if you, you know, totally, you know, bombed out or, or you went away for six months, uh, the corporation is going to live, right? Um, for us, it, it, you know, w right now, Get Human is doing great. Um, we, we actually are, are uh, you know, meeting a lot of the goals that, that we've set forth. But the reality is that we have a limited lifeline right now, that, that we aren't, um, you know, since we raised money and, and hired a lot of people, you know, we're, we're losing money every month. Um, I mean, that's the nature of working at a VC backed startup, like at this stage. And until you get to either the next round of funding or you get to be profitable, like it's, it is do or die. And, and, and even that I think would be fine. It, it, it not as much of a big deal if, um, I was younger. Uh, you know, th there is one thing that it, it's something that I don't think people talk about a lot or like to or whatever, but, um, when you get older, it gets tougher to do startups. Like there, there is age bias in our, in our industry and on a number of levels. And, um, besides that, just, just when you have family and you have other responsibilities, you can't take as much risk. So all these things come together and, you know, for me, it, it's because of the situation and because of, you know, where I'm at, you know, I have to do things where I, I under any other circumstance, I, I probably wouldn't like any other circumstance. I'm still placing a huge value on ng because that's such high exposure. And like, 
it, it's it's so great for my overall career. But given the specific thing we're at, like I I can't like th- this th- it would it would hurt this other thing that I'm doing and this other thing is that much more important at least for right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense to me. And uh, you know when I was put in the position where I had to choose between the consulting and the podcasting, I mean ultimately yeah what it came down to me was kind of the same thing was um you know where can i have the impact and where does the impact matter and where does it matter to me and yeah it's it's a lot of the same thought process and then it's okay so where am i at and what are the risks and what are the rewards and and yeah it it doesn't make the decision easy but you know it does make it a little bit simpler to make i'm also curious you know you've spoken at conferences you've you know, you've done Angular Air, you've been involved in Angular Universal. Um, you know, I've seen you reply to people online with specific uh, answers to questions. What's the thing that you've contributed to the Angular community that you're the most proud of? So <laughs> the funny thing is, um, it's probably, I, I, I don't know uh, if, if it's had as much impact as I thought in my head, but, um, there was a blog post I wrote just after NG Europe two years ago. So NG Europe two years ago when they first announced, um, announced, uh, Angular 2. One of the headstones. Drama, drama, drama. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And right after that, people were freaking out. Um, people were, uh, I mean, it was, it was pandemonium and I wrote a blog post called screw you Angular," and where I basically, it was <laughs> tongue in cheek talking about the end of the world. And, um, I mean the, the message really was like, things are going to be fine. You know, the, the, this is, this is, uh, you know, things are going to work out. This is a great community. Don't worry about it. Like, Mm-hmm. In, in so far, I mean, and I make fun of like a lot of the uh, craziness going on, and that um, you know, hit one on Hacker, Hacker News. It was actually in, in Medium uh, on Medium dot com. They 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 have like the top articles, and it and it hit like number three that day on on Medium dot com. Oh wow! And uh, and like that was all cool, but like the, you know the the one thing that I. Um, and that, so it wasn't just like that article, but it, it's sort of what that article represents that I think I, I at least bring a little bit to, to the Angular community, which is get, let's get out of these, um, framework wars. Like that, that's, that's part of what I was, I was kind of advocating in that article that th- both things can be good. Like you can like react and you can like Angular. Like, it, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other and it doesn't have to be one that one sucks and the other doesn't. Um, you know, you can learn to appreciate both and you can learn to learn from both. And, you know, that, that sort of lines up with how Igor and a lot of the core team thinks as well. And I don't think that necessarily everyone in the, in the Angular community, um, thinks that way, but I, I do think that that is more of the prevalent tone that, than you see in other communities. I, I, I've seen in other, some other communities where it is more adversarial, where it is more of like, we're the best contentious, you know, and I I don't see that as much in our community. And I think 
Um, that is because of some of the work that the, the most prominent you know figures in our community do espouse more of this kind of openness and like kind of bringing people in and 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 learning from everybody else rather than kind of pushing people away and saying we're the best and you suck, you know. Um, so you know besides the actual like code that I've I've contributed. Um, you know, I, I, I am proud that our community is of that mindset for the most part. That's really awesome. And it's, it's interesting cause I was, I wasn't sure what you were going to say, but I was pretty sure it was going to be, well, this contribution on this code or this particular uh, talk or maybe a, an episode of angular air, but you know, instead it's the idea of coming together and the idea of, Hey, look, you know, um, it's it's not the angular factor or the react factor it's the people factor and the problem solving factor and what we do that matters and and that's that's cool that is really cool yeah definitely yeah it, it's uh all about um solving the problem uh you know helping each other for sure yep all right so uh what are you working on now i guess we talked a bit about that with get human is there anything else that we need to go into with that yeah there is one other thing i'm working on actually um yeah i i I loved starting or not starting but but being a part of the angular uh community uh, in boston and uh you know I, i helped run the meetup here with sharon diorio and like we uh, I, I think over over the past you know three years or whatever we we've grown the community to be you know pretty big and vibrant, and with Get Human, one of the things that we're doing in addition to you know working a lot with Angular is we're starting to work with a lot of like AI based technologies now because in order to make the servicing of customer service problems efficient, we do need to use various um, artificial intelligent um, you know machine learning based uh, techniques. And so, um, I, I sort of wanted to start to cultivate that same type of community in Boston, um, for AI that we've been able to do over the past three years for angular. And so I, I just started a new AI meetup group. Um, and I'm starting to kind of go around town and kind of drum up interest and, and bring people together from a lot of different startups and larger companies that are working on really innovative, um, AI stuff. And I'm hoping that over the course of the next couple of years that that will, you know, really grow into like a bigger thing. And, and really, um, eventually a lot, the use of, you know, machine learning and NLP and, um, chatbots, everything like that, that it'll be, um, much more mainstream. Um, and you'll start to see, uh, people as kind of like a, a necessary core competency of being a developer, understanding a lot of these things. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that, you know, I'll at least be a part of helping to foster that in the Boston community as well. That's really cool. It's a long drive for me, but I would love to come. <laughs> well, actually, um, one thing that I'm doing with this that I have learned from other meetups is that 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, the, the local meetup is, is useful to kind of get people who are physically there, but there's no reason why you can't bring in people outside of Boston and outside of the local area. So what we're doing is we're, we're making sure that we, you know, video record every session that we we're creating a new website to post everything along with like uh, additional blog posts by us. And we're even going to do some podcasts. So basically we're using the sort of local meetup to be the content generator for this large community as well. So you should definitely uh, still join. Uh, it's If you go to bostonai.org, we, um, it's, it's really, really rudimentary and bad right now as far as websites go. I have some work to do before our uh, first meeting next month. But um, that's basically the entry point where we're going to be having a lot of our content and, you know, we'll have a Slack channel and all that type of stuff. Um, so even if you're not in the local area, you should join and, and you'll definitely benefit from a lot of the stuff that we have going on here. That's really cool. And no, he didn't give me those questions to ask beforehand. <laughs> he, he just thought of the things that I was like, oh, darn, it's not here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Um, so, so where do people go to find out about that? You said you have a website up and it's kind of rudimentary. Yeah. Is it around? Yes. Bostonai.org. Nice. All right. Well, this will come out in a few weeks, so then it'll be pretty by then. Um, exactly. <laughs> all right. So, uh, the last thing that, uh, we do on these shows and we've already gone longer than I said we would, but you seem okay with that, uh, is picks. So do you have some things that you want to shout out about? Yeah, I have two things. Um, the first is ng-conf. So I, I mentioned that I was not able to submit a talk for there, but I am um, lucky, lucky enough to be involved with the committee who is running it. And um, we have an awesome uh, conference that is planned. So if you don't have tickets now, you want to go, there is going to be a couple chances to get free tickets over the course of the next uh, couple months through or a couple uh, weeks through different um, contests and that type of thing they're going to put out. So definitely follow um, the Twitter handle. I think it's at uh, ngconf. And um, even if you're not, definitely watch the live stream once it comes out, you know, the end of or the beginning of uh, April. And then my uh, second pick, I was going to give a shout out to our. Um, our pr primary investors. So uh, get human I mentioned just raised money and we have two awesome um, groups uh, that are investing in us. I mean, we have a bunch of investors, but the, the two main uh, leads uh, investors are uh, founder collective and next to you ventures. If you are um, a startup and you are thinking about raising money, um, I mean, definitely you can talk to me. I'll give you um, advice and, and we could talk about it. Um, but I can't recommend enough um, David at Founder Collective and Rob at Next View Ventures. They are the best. Awesome, guys. Very cool. And if people want to check out Get Human? Yes. So if you have any customer service problems, um, just go to gethuman.com. And we have, even if you don't want to pay us to solve it, um, we have a bunch of free tools where we tell you the instructions and you can do it yourself or at the very least um, tell you how to get in touch with them uh, so you don't have to wait on hold as long. Nice. Um, I'm going to do a couple of picks here myself. Um, the first one is um, I just cleaned my office this last week and by cleaned I mean hauled out. I had this huge modular desk. It's 
think of it like a cubicle, except it was in a home office and took up most of the room that I'm in. Um, so I hauled that out of here. <laughs> Things made of steel weighs a ton. Um, but you can pull it apart, so then it just weighs a ton in pieces. Um, and I got these new desks. Uh, they're autonomous desks. Autonomous is the brand. Uh, they were at CES this last year. Um, and... Yeah, I talked to the the folks over there, terrific people. And um, they were actually going to sell me some of their ones right off of the the show floor. But it turns out the CES doesn't like them selling stuff off the show floor. So uh, they gave me a coupon code and I just ordered some. Um, But anyway, they're they're really nice desks. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to hear this, but um, I don't know. Can you hear can you hear the motor? No, not, not really, huh? No, no, I don't think so. That that just means that I have a really nice microphone um, hooked onto this desk. But anyway, um, so it has a motor in it that goes up and down. Super nice. My kids keep coming in my office now and saying, Daddy, make the desk go up, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but uh, I got nice. two of them, um, and I set I, – I, I used to have one of the uh, Lifehacker IKEA standing desks. And so it was just a kind of a table, like a side table with a shelf screwed into two of the legs um, for the keyboard. And so you would just basically measure yourself and then set it up so that everything was at the right height. Um, But I moved the monitors off of that. And so now I have this nice uh, four monitor setup on my uh, desk and I can just sit here and and work. And uh, it's been really, really nice. Um, so I'm digging that. Um, I have the Ergotron arms, the uh, articulating arms. And so, uh, that's been really nice too, just be able to put all this stuff where I want it. Um, so I'm going to pick that. And then this is going to come out right before JS remote conf. So if you're looking for a conference that you can attend online, so you don't have to go anywhere and, uh, you don't have to pay for a hotel or airfare and you get terrific JavaScript talks, then uh, go to jsremoteconf.com and uh, pick up your ticket. Um, If you use the discount code JSJabber, um, it'll get you 20% off. And um, I'm I'm really looking forward to all of the awesome people who are going to speak and all the awesome people who are going to come. Last year and the year before, we had quite a number of people come, and so I'm really excited for it. Um, It seems like a lot of the people that I've talked to that have come in the past they have some kind of thing that prevents them from coming. So they have a family member that they have to take care of or they don't have the budget for and their company doesn't have the budget for sending them to in-person conferences. And so this is a great way to do it. We have a Slack channel. We do a roundtable chat the evening of the first night. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, I know I'm tooting my own horn here, but way fun. Anyway, we'll... uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this up. Um, Jeff, if people want to follow you, see what you're doing, uh, you mentioned that you have a blog on Medium, all that stuff. How do people find all that stuff? Yeah, I I think the best way is to follow me on Twitter. I I tweet quite a bit. And so it's at Jeff Welpley, W-H-E-L-P-L-E-Y. And anything else, like whether I'm writing a blog post or doing whatever else, I always post on there. So definitely follow me on Twitter. All right. Well, um, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming, Jeff. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. I did too. We'll catch everyone next week. Peace out.
Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there.